Judges chapter 6. We'll look at a message today entitled, No Turning Back. We've all seen one of America's great landmarks, at least on picture, if not in person. That's the small mission church in San Antonio, Texas, called the Alamo. For those of you who know history, you'll remember that the Alamo in 1836 became a turning point in American history as the Texans fought for independence from Mexico. And that event there, the battle that took place there, altered the destiny of two nations. The story goes that a group of Texans had declared themselves a sovereign state, independent of Mexican rule. And of course, the Mexico government was obviously unwilling to accept such an action, and so they responded by sending an army of 1,800 men across the Rio Grande River. They were led by General Santa Ana, and they were going to crush the rebellion as those brave men held out at this place called the Alamo. The Texans had dug in a small detachment, a couple of hundred men there. They converted this makeshift mission into a fort, and among those brave Texans were legends in American Western history, names like Davy Crockett, frontier heroes like Jim Bowie and Colonel William Travis. The story goes that for 13 days, Santa Ana's forces laid siege around the Alamo, and the Americans faced a critical decision as they saw the handwriting on the wall, if you will. They could surrender and live, or they could hold out and die. So it was either fight or flee. And so it is said that in the dire moment of decision that Colonel William Travis brought his men out into the courtyard there and with his saber he drew a line in the sand and he told all the willing men who were going to fight to the death to step forward and come across that line. And the story goes that every man there crossed the line and all of those men died defending the Alamo all of them except one, a man named Joe, who happened to be Colonel Travis's slave. But a, a phrase arose out of that. A battle cry came, remember the Alamo. And eventually, Texas did gain its independence when Sam Houston drove out the Mexican army. And Texas was admitted into the United States in the year 1845. But I tell you that story because the man we've been reading about, Gideon, in Judges chapter 6, had an Alamo moment, if you will. A line was drawn in the sand. And God was asking this leader if he would have the courage to, to stand and to step across that line and fight. And because of Gideon's courage that he found in God's calling, he stepped across that line, if you will, and there was no turning back from that moment. Just as those brave men at the Alamo stepped across the line and paid dearly with their lives for independence and freedom, there was no turning back for Gideon. Now remember, as we've studied Gideon's life, he was not exactly a man of valor as the angel of the Lord called him out of that wine press. Remember, that's where God found him doing the day's work in a hole because he was afraid of the big bad Midianites who were oppressing God's people. But God has been in a process of transforming this zero into a hero. And as we continue in Judges chapter 6, we're going to discover some truths that transformed Gideon from a coward into a conqueror. 
And God is still calling His people today to live bold and to believe Him. And if we want to have an effect on our generation as Gideon did his, we ought to understand these three things that help transform Gideon into a mighty man of God. And if we do these things in our lives, I believe we can gain courage and we can make a difference, make an impact in this godless generation that we live in. The number one thing that I see here in our text that Gideon had was, number one, a private altar with God. He had, number one, a private altar with God. Let's read again, verse 19, Judges 6. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put into a basket and the broth he put into a pot. And he brought them to him, speaking of the angel of the Lord, under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. The angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. And Gideon built there an altar to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace, and to this day it stands at Orpha, which belongs to the Abizarites. All throughout the Old Testament, you'll find a pattern of God's people building altars. You'll remember, if we go back to the book of Genesis, that Noah was probably the first as his family disembarked from the ark. They came upon the dry land there, and they built an altar to worship the Lord and His faithfulness for preserving them through that judgment. That was in Genesis chapter 8. Then if you keep reading, you'll notice that Abraham builds an altar to the Lord at a place called Bethel, where he heard the call that God would promise him to be the father of a nation. That was in Genesis 12. Keep reading, you find out that Jacob has an encounter with the Lord also at Bethel, and he builds an altar after he has that dream of the ladder descending from heaven. That's in Genesis 28. And then in Joshua chapter 8, after Joshua and his mighty men go in and they conquer the city of Ai, they build an altar celebrating the victory that God had given them over those people. So if you study altars being built in the Old Testament, they could stand for many different things. It could be a place of worship, obviously, a place of divine encounter, a place of remembrance. And here in Judges chapter 6, we find that Gideon has built his first altar to the Lord after he's met the angel of the Lord, which, by the way, is an Old Testament reference to a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ before Bethlehem, and the Bible says that he brought a sacrifice, he brought an offering to the Lord, he laid it on a rock, the angel of the Lord consumed it with the touch of his rod, and therefore Gideon had a confirming sign as he was about to head into battle to face the Midianites that God was with him and that God had already delivered the enemy into his hand. Remember the promise he said there, you shall not surely die or you shall deliver the people as if one man. So in the Bible, when one builds an altar, notice this, they always walk away different. They always come away changed, empowered, 
altered at the altar, if you will. And so, in other words, the altar is always a place where God does a work in us before He does a work through us. And you'll notice here that Gideon dedicated his altar to the Lord at a time when Israel was littered with idols to the false god Baal. And so Gideon's altar makes a bold statement. He would be the only man in his country to walk and to worship the living and true God. Even though Gideon was about to face a greater opponent in the Midianites, Gideon goes to the altar first and he arises there, filled, the Bible says, with peace, God's peace. That's what he names the place. And because he already knows the outcome, having met the Lord, got a vision from God, and got his courage in the calling. But it all flowed out of this private altar that he had with God. You see, Gideon wasn't outnumbered. Gideon wasn't really outmatched because the Lord was with him. And as I said last week, I'm not really good at math, but God plus one is always a majority. Amen? So Gideon came out of this experience knowing that he could not lose. Friend, here's the application that you need to notice for your life, and that is this. Ask yourself, do you have an altar in your life? What, what do I mean by that? I mean a place where you regularly meet with God for fellowship and worship. You say, well, preacher, I've got the church. No, I'm not talking about the church. That's corporate worship. That's what we do together as a body of Christ. We get together, we sing praises, we serve, uh, we hear the Word of God declared in a public form. I'm talking about a private altar with God. A place where heaven and earth convene, where you meet with your God the other six days of the week and you find strength to fight your battles. You see, the altar is much needed today the altar is the place where you lay down your weakness and you take up God's strength for the challenges. The altar is the place where you come to God and you give God your problems and He replaces that with peace. The altar is the place where you're reminded of God's faithfulness, of God's goodness, and you get up leaving better than when you visited and you have that assurance of God's promised provision for the future. You see, friend, listen to me. The purpose of an altar is to be altered, to be changed, to be transformed, as Gideon was in this hour. The altar is the place where confession leads to cleansing, leads to communion. So, ask yourself, do you have an altar? You say, what do you mean, preacher? I mean a private place where you can get alone with God, where you can open that Word, and God can speak to you through His Spirit and through His Word, and you find the daily sustenance that you need to face whatever's coming your way that day. It could be a tree stump out in the forest, out in the back behind your house. It could be uh, the lawnmower. I've heard guys talk about getting on the lawnmower, and the sound of that motor just drives out the rest of the noise of the world, and you can actually have a conversation with God. You can talk with God while you're mowing the grass. Amen? 
I've heard of people having a prayer closet, a, a place they go in their house where they shut the door behind them and they have that private altar, that private experience with God. It could be in the cab of your car. How many of you know the Holy Spirit will meet with you there in your car and you'll be rolling down the road and the gospel music starts pumping and the Holy Spirit starts moving. All of a sudden I start singing. All of a sudden I start uh, shedding tears and snot bubbles are coming out and the guy over on the other side is looking at me saying, I wonder what's going on in the cab of that car and I just want to look at him and say uh, I'm having an encounter with the living God wherever you are it can become an altar because the Spirit of God dwells within you take a lesson from Gideon listen to this before we can stand to wage war we must kneel and worship at the altar that's how Gideon found his strength to go out and fight the battle how many of us are going out in the world to fight and we ain't prepared for it? We ain't put on a spiritual armor. We ain't prayed. We ain't read the Word. We got nothing to work with. No wonder the church is powerless in our day. John Hyde, I've mentioned him before. He was a, a great man of God. He, in fact, as a young person, he answered the call to go be a missionary in India. His first years there, he records, were an utter disaster, utter failure. In fact, the first two or three years of his ministry, he was brought to the point of utter exhaustion. He was a nervous wreck. He had no converts to speak of, and John Hyde was ready to give up. He was ready to throw in the towel and go back home. But he was convicted, and he decided in his life that really what was missing after studying the Scriptures was he did not have a vibrant prayer life. In other words... He needed to set up an altar in his life. So he said, Lord, I'm going to give it one more year. And Lord, if you'll meet with me, and Lord, if you'll help me, we'll see what happens. So in 1908, John Hyde got up every morning. He got down on his face before God, and he prayed, God, listen to the boldness of this. God, give me one soul every day. One soul every day. And the story goes that by the end of that year, John Hyde had recorded 400 converts to Jesus Christ. Well, that made a believer out of him. So the next year, year two, he said, Lord, give me two souls every day. And you know what? The Lord answered that prayer. Because at the end of the year, he had 800 converts. The next year, he said, Lord, add to it. And by the end of that year, he had corresponding results. In fact, by the end of his life, he only lived to be 46. He'd seen thousands of people respond to the gospel. He'd planted churches. And it was all built on a private altar of prayer. And he coined this phrase that is so powerful. You need to remember it. A prayerless Christian is a powerless Christian. And John Hyde did an amazing work there in that country because it was all birthed, it all flowed out of a private altar with God. By the way, let me put a plug in. Wednesday nights after the Bible lesson, you stay after and you pray with me. I've got a handful of people that are praying. Will you join me if you're coming to that Bible study? Come and join us in our classroom. We're praying for God to do something here. We're praying for God to shake the ground. We're praying for God to awaken this nation and do something in this church that only God can do. I believe it can be built with a private altar. Somebody once asked the great classical pianist Arthur Rubenstein about his piano practicing. They want to know, sir, how did you get so proficient? How did you become such a... Master at the piano. Here's what he said. He said, if I mispractice one day, I know it. 
If I mispractice two days, my friends know it. He said, if I mispractice three days, the world knows it. Now translate that into your private altar. Hey, you miss one day, you're going to notice it. You miss two days, your spouse is going to know it. Your friends are going to know it. But you keep missing day, 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 the world's going to notice it. Maybe we need to get back to having a private altar in our own lives because, friends, that's where the victory for the battle is determined. We need, as Gideon had, a private altar with God. Then also I want you to see this today as we continue. We need, number two, a public allegiance to God. A public allegiance to God. Notice, as we get into this chapter, you're going to see that Gideon has his first test of obedience. And it comes right on the heels of this mountaintop worship experience. Read with me verse 25. Notice what happens. That night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. And then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. Verse 27, And so... Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of that town to do it by day, he did it at night. (laughs) Now, let's just pause right there. Gideon's first test of obedience. By the way, it's easy to serve God on the mountain. It's a whole lot more of a test when you come down from the mountain. And you have to serve God in obedience when he asked you to put your faith out there in public. That's what happened in Gideon's life. Notice here that in his backyard, or in the family's backyard there, there was a visible symbol of all that was wrong in the nation of Israel. Gideon's father, a man named Joash, had, the Bible tells us, erected a shrine of Baal. Archaeologists have discovered these remains of ancient Baal shrines in Israel. Uh, There's a picture of one on your screen. In fact, there was one found in the place called Megiddo a few years ago. It was 26 feet square and four and a half feet wide. It was made of stones cemented by mud. And these shrines were usually included an image of Baal. And then there was a wooden pole, which the Bible talks about there, that represent Baal's mistress, the Asherah. And Gideon is told to tear down the altar and cut down the wooden shrine. He's to take his father's two bulls and tear down the one. And then he was to chop down the pole, which is interesting because Gideon's name literally means hewer or cutter. And so he's to use the wood from that idol as fuel for the sacrifice to take that second bull and dedicate and offer that to the Lord as a consecrated place. And notice that the Bible says that the bull he was to offer in that sacrifice was seven years old. That is symbolic, I believe, of the oppression that the Midianites had put on Israel for seven years. And thus when Gideon is offering this bull, it would be as if the seven years of those oppressing would be going up in the smoke of his obedience. Because God was going to do a work through him and God was going to deliver these people. Now, as you look at this passage... And you talk about a public profession. 
a public allegiance to God. I want you to see there's three underlying ideas here that we need to note. First off, there is the priority of allegiance to God. The priority of allegiance to God. Notice here that God does not accept half-hearted commitment. He turned to Gideon. He said, Gideon, it's time to declare war. Go in the backyard of your fathers and tear down the altar. Remember the first two commandments. Exodus chapter 20. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself the card image or any likeness of anything in heaven above or that is which in the earth beneath or under the water under the earth. Let me ask you a question. What idols need to be torn down in your life? What idols have you allowed to be put up in your personal life? You're tolerating them. You're, you're, you're allowing it to happen. And God is pointing to you right now through the person of His Holy Spirit. He's been speaking to you and you've been putting Him off and saying no. And God is telling you, it's time to declare war on that idol in your life. You see, if Jesus is not Lord of all, He's not Lord at all. And we have to have a priority of allegiance to God. And friend, I'm telling you, the day has long arrived when God's people must stand against a pagan culture and point to some idols in our society and say, it's time for these to come down. There's some parents who need to go to the school board and make some noise about the garbage that they're trying to brainwash into the heads of our precious children wanting to teach them to hate this country and wanting to teach them reverse racism. I'm talking about critical race theory and uh, the LBGT agenda and some of these other godless things that they're wanting to pour into the lives of our young people. Hey, the idol's got to come down and God's people have got to get some courage and stand up and say, not on my watch, not in my community, not in my backyard, by the power of God which lives in me, I'm going to stand and fight. There's some men of God who need to stand up in their own home. And they need to tear down some idols that has been erected. They need to look over the shoulder of what they're allowing into their kids, through their screens, through their phones, through television. And there's some dads that need to declare war and say, we're getting that garbage out of here. We're not watching that anymore. We're not listening to that anymore. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There's some pastors who need to grow a backbone and pastors who need to stand up against some of the false doctrine that's infiltrated the church. This idolatry that says that we've got to be popular and we've got to fit in and we've got to have numbers and statistics and we've got to be liked by the world. All these idols that pastors bow to. It's time for the church to, to get some courage and say, hey, these idols have got to be torn down. It's not of the Spirit of God. It's not ordained by the Word of God. There's some churches that need to stand up. This may be controversial. Facebook may kick me off for this. There's some churches that need to stand up against a heavy-handed government who would like to restrict your freedom of worship. There's some churches in this country that need to stand up and say, you will not shut us down again. We're not going into hibernation. We're not retreating. We're not closing the doors. We have a mission. We have a call from God to preach the gospel and reach the lost. Our country's going to hell in a handbasket. I cannot sit by while I allow this evil to go on in my land. It's time for some churches to say the idols have got to come down. 
The priority of allegiance to God. There's also, number two, the process of allegiance to God. Look at this. Before Gideon could lead a nation into obeying God, he had to deal with the sin in his own family and in his own village. Listen to this, especially men. Men, do you know our first ministry begins in the home? I'm preaching to myself here. Yes, I bring my, my kids to church. They don't, have a, they don't have a choice. But if I, as a man, do not live the same way at home as I do in the pulpit, I'm being a hypocrite. I've got to teach my kids the Word of God. I've got to pray for my kids. I've got to lead them spiritually. Because we know our schools aren't going to do it. We know Hollywood's not going to do it. And the church, especially men, have to understand this. Our first ministry begins in the home. And before God gives His servants great victories in public, He often prepares them with smaller challenges. When we are faithful to the small things, then He'll trust us with greater things. I like what Gary Enrig wrote in his book, Hearts of Iron, Feet of Clay. He gave this insight. He said, look at this. God was asking Gideon to fight his most difficult battle first. How so? He said, often the very hardest place to represent Christ is in our own family and with our friends and co-workers. Quite frankly, it's much easier, he said, to stand up for the Lord among complete strangers than in our home and neighborhoods because those people know us the best and we have to live among them every day. Can I get a witness on that today? He said, if we don't practice our faith at home, how can we be expected to live it out obediently anywhere else? What a great insight. That's why God called Gideon to say, hey, you want to be a mighty man? Declare war in your own home. Fight the idols. Tear down the idols that's in your own backyard. There's also not only the process of allegiance and the priority of allegiance, but the power of allegiance to God. Don't miss what this verse says. Verse 27, I laughed when I read it a couple of days ago. The Bible says that Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was too afraid, told you he was a coward, because he was too afraid of his family, and the men of the town to do it by day. He did it by night. Reminds me of another fellow, Nicodemus in the New Testament, who came to Jesus by night. Because he was afraid of what other people might say and think. Notice this. Gideon was afraid of the repercussions of tearing down this Baal idol. And so, he does it under the cover of night. Now notice this. God did not miraculously take away all of Gideon's fear and uncertainty and anxiety. But Gideon found the courage to obey God anyway. And that's real obedience when you put your faith over your fear and you say, God, I'm putting this in your hands. I'm obeying you. My responsibility is obedience. Your responsibility, God, is outcome. And let God handle the results. And the Bible says... That immediately when the sun rose the next day, there was chatter in the town. Notice verse 28. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal, <laughs> imagine this, was broken, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And when they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash has done this thing. And then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring your son, 
that he may die for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. Now notice here, Gideon ruffled some feathers. He rattled some cages. He upset the status quo. And the Bible says that when he destroyed this Baal shrine, that as the countrymen of Gideon in that town began to talk, they thought this is a capital offense. We've got to tar, feather, hang, and string Gideon up. They were willing to put Gideon to death for what he had done. But notice this, Gideon's obedience led not only to his transformation, but a transformation in his idol-worshiping dad. Do you see that? In essence, Joash, who had this idol, contended with the people and he said, Listen, if Baal really is the God who we think he is, then he can defend himself. And if not, then he's a dead God and he doesn't deserve our allegiance and our worship. And the light bulb began to go on in the whole village and it sparked a transformation in that little family and in that town for God's glory. It proved that Baal was a dead God. Now let me, let me offer you something here. When you begin to take up the calling, when you see that line drawn in the sand and God asked you to cross over it, I can better assure you not everybody's going to like it. You think the world is going to be happy with the church standing up and speaking out? They want the church, the world wants the church to sit down, shut up, and stay in our own little religious corner. They don't want us to get out there and live our faith. They don't want us to be about the Lord's business. They don't want us to be spirit-filled and bold and let people know that we have a glorious God and a great Savior and a Word of God that tells us everything we need to know about godliness and holiness. When you begin to stand for the Lord, when you draw the line in your household, in your workplace, in your family, in your church, in your culture, I can guarantee you you're going to face some pushback. But you know what? I'd rather stand before God and hear, well done, good and faithful servant, than to get a little hand clap and a little pat on the back from the world who don't know my God and don't worship my God. You can expect the pushback. But you know what? I'd rather be obedient to God. Because at the end of the day, who has to answer for your life and my life? Is it them? Is it those who cast doubt? Is it those who criticize? Hey, you can say what you want about me. You can say what you want about my church, my preaching. You better not talk about my wife or kids. You can attack me, but you know what? I'm standing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I've got to meet His approval, not the fleeting approval of somebody made of dust. God help us to stand up. Notice this. I wrote this down in my notes this week. Simple obedience to God can remove stubborn obstacles and render a supernatural outcome. Do you hear that? Simple obedience to God can remove stubborn obstacles and render a supernatural outcome. Joshua obeyed God. You think he looked ridiculous marching around the city of Jericho for seven days? 
And then on the seventh day, marching around seven times. How foolish did that look? Was that much of a battle strategy? Yet he obeyed God, and God made the walls of Jericho fall before him. Sometimes you have to look ridiculous before you can be victorious in the Christian walk. Hey, how foolish uh, did uh, the Hebrew children look? Uh, they wouldn't bow. The, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, gave him an ultimatum and said, you better bow or burn. They said, we're going to burn. And when they threw him in the fire, oh, praise God, there was a fourth man walking in the flames with them. They were obedient and God removed an obstacle. And God gave a supernatural outcome. And then we see, friend, Gideon obeyed God. And there was a spiritual awakening that took place in his town and then throughout Israel. Because one man obeyed God. One man put up an altar. One man tore down an idol and said, I'm serving the living God. Come with me if you want and we'll see the victory of Almighty God. Friend, if you're fearful of the consequences of standing up and living for God in your home, in your school, in your circle of friends, on social media, wherever you are, don't worry about it. Obey God and you're going to be surprised about the obstacles that He'll move and the way that He'll change the outcome for those who will be obedient to Him. That's the power of allegiance to God, the process of allegiance, the priority of allegiance to God. Hey, we can't sit by and just assume that the world knows we're good little church people anymore. We've got to have a public allegiance to Christ and let the world know, yeah, I am a Bible believer. Yeah, I am a conservative. Yeah, I believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Yeah, I believe that abortion is murder. Yeah, I believe there's only two sexes. It's male and female. Yes, I believe in teaching them that God created all men and women equal in the sight of God and made in the image of God. It's not a skin problem. It's a sin problem. We need to uh, stand up and let the world know, hey, I'm not timid about this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of my Lord. And have a public allegiance. And let our faith speak out in the public square as Gideon did. By the way, we talk about obedience. Sometimes it's hard to obey God. Because we're afraid. We believe the lies the enemy tells us. And we think God can't meet the need. I'll tell you a little story. My papa, he was not a spiritual man. My dad will tell you. The spiritual leader in my daddy's home was his mama. A good part of the reason why my daddy is saved today and why I believe that I'm a preacher today is because of the testimony of a God-fearing woman who drug her children to church and he prayed for the next generation. My papa was a hard-hearted man. And I can remember growing up, papa never prayed. I never saw papa read from the Bible. Never saw papa in church, but maybe once or twice when it was a special occasion. But my papa had no gumption, no hunger, no thirst for spiritual things. And I can remember my dad got a burden for him. My uncles got a burden for him. They began to pray. They began to ask God, God, will you save Papa? Will you save Daddy? Break down his hard heart. Nothing happened. He got, he got older. His body began to break down. And how many of you know when you get closer to death, priorities begin to look differently, don't they? The things that you valued at once when you were a young person don't look as, as golden as they used to be. Papa, his body began to break down on him, and he began to take note of the spiritual walk of the people in his life. 
He noticed the walk of my daddy. He noticed the walk of my uncle. He, he, he knew that I had answered a call to preach. He may have come and heard me preach one time. He knew about my cousin Justin who answered the call to preach. He had all these spiritual men of God around him praying for him. Do you think he stood a chance? <laughs> but the heart can put up a fight, can't it? Well, I remember as Papa got older and, and his eyesight wasn't good anymore and I just didn't know how much time he had left. God impressed upon me. He had a birthday in December. He said, give him a Bible. I said, Lord, he'll never read it. He said, obey me. I bought my papa a brand new Bible. I said, Lord, what do you want me to write in it? God gave me some words, and I wrote some words in the front of that Bible. And I prayed over it before I gave it to him. And I said, God, if this can have any effect on the hard heart of my papa, I pray that you bless it and use it. Well, I've told you the story of what happened to Papa. As he got older and as he got more weak, he began to realize he needed Jesus. He began to realize that he was not ready to go off into eternity. And you had the whole family praying for him. And the story goes that my uncle was on the front porch with him. It was late in the fall and he reached over and he said, I need to be saved today. And right there on the front porch... My uncle tells me that Papa prayed, Lord, save me a sinner. And we believe wholeheartedly that he got the goods and that he got saved. My dad tells a story, one of the sweetest things he got to do before Papa passed on is that he got to pray with his dad. And I'm telling you, I was glad that I obeyed God, that I did my little seed watering and giving him that Bible. Yeah, I was scared because it was my papa. I didn't know what he would say. I always looked up to him. But you know, he wasn't one of those men who said, I love you. He came from that generation where he didn't express affection that way. But one of the last things he said to me, you know what he said? He said, Derek, he said, I'm proud of all you boys. I'm proud of all you boys. That meant I support what you stand for. I support what you do. And if God could save the hard heart of an old man like Joe McCarson, oh, he can turn back a generation. He can bless your little obedience if all you have to give is one simple little act. You obey God and you let God handle the outcome. God did it in my family. He can do it in yours. Don't give up on the prodigal. Don't give up on the hard-hearted. You say, I've prayed, I've preached, I've presented. I don't know what else to do. You keep loving them. You keep obeying God. And you let God break down the heart. Oh, my goodness. You see, number one, we need a private altar with God. And then we need, number two, we need a public allegiance to God. And then number three, I'm done here today. Number three, look at this. We need a powerful anointing from God. Powerful anointing from God. Look at verse 33. I'm almost done. Don't give up on me yet. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together. And they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. Watch this. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. And he sounded the trumpet, and the Abizarites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers all throughout Manasseh, and they too were called to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asherah and Zebulun and Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. My, my, what a transformation God has made in this man. Notice, as Israel's enemies arrayed for battle, it was time for Gideon's big moment. And just when Gideon needed the Lord the most, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit came upon him and anointed him 
for the task. I love the way the Hebrew language renders this. The Holy Spirit wore Gideon like the way a soldier might wear a suit of armor. And Gideon's courageous leadership, notice what it did. It rallied all the tribes around him. And they stood to stand against these invaders. What a day and night picture we have of Gideon compared to a few days ago when he was wallowing in the hole. The anointing power of God fell on this man for a great task. Now today, listen friend, do you know that today in the New Testament era we have greater access to the Spirit of God than Gideon did in his time? In the Old Testament days, the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, would rest on people for a limited time to do a specific task. But in this age, greater is he that is within me than he that is in the world. Every blood-bought believer in Christ is empowered by the Holy Spirit for service and to do a task in his church. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to resist the wiles and the temptations of Satan. It gives The Holy Spirit gives every believer a spiritual gift to serve in the body of Christ. Thank God today that we have a paraclete. Thank God we have a Holy Spirit. He'll come alongside us in our weakness, in our infirmity, in our uncertainty, and help us to serve God in a powerful way. It's not about me. It's about Him. I can't preach with power, but the Holy Spirit in me can be a voice crying in the wilderness. I can't convict of sin, but I can turn on the light and let the Holy Spirit do the heart work. I can't love like Jesus can love, but the Holy Spirit in me can soften the heart of this old boy. I can't always worship in spirit and truth, but sometimes the Holy Spirit rises up in me and I just have to shout. I just have to raise my hand. I don't know where you are today, but the Holy Spirit is there with you, child of God. You have everything that you need to fight, to serve, to be a conqueror in Jesus Christ's name. Oh my goodness. A leader today may be intelligent, they may be educated, they may have a good resume, they may be successful, they may be respected and popular in the eyes of the world, but nothing can compensate for the anointing of God on a life. An ounce of God's anointing is worth 10,000 tons of human talent. God appoints And God anoints. And the anointing of God is what helped Gideon turn him from the coward into the conqueror. And the anointing of God is what provides all the intangibles. It teaches what seminary can't teach. It can't be bought. It can't be learned at a seminar. Oh God, give me your anointing. Give me your touch, your power, your strength. God, I need your courage. I need your wisdom. I need your favor, your blessing, your power, your wisdom. Where's the men of God and women of God who rise up today and say, Holy Spirit, enable me to lead my family. God, help me to reach my lost friends. Lord, enable me to serve greater and deeper and longer in the church. Help me to turn up the worship in my life God because there's a battle out there to fight and Lord I need your help powerful anointing of God the question today is not how can I get more of the Holy Spirit the question today is how can I give more of myself to him that's what Gideon found out in the moment the Holy Spirit came upon him and used him 
And Gideon was changed from a coward to a conqueror by a private altar, a public allegiance, and a powerful anointing. And God is still changing lives the same way today. By the way, there was an amazing transformation that took place in another timid man years ago who felt God calling him to some radical obedience. Listen to this. The man named Telemachus was a 4th century Christian monk who lived in a remote village. He spent most of the day tending his garden and in prayer. One day, during his devotion, he heard the voice of God telling him to go to Rome, which in that day was the largest city on the face of the earth. So he obeyed the voice of the Lord and he went out walking on foot. Weary and weeks later, he arrived in the city at a time of a great festival. The little monk followed the crowd surging down the streets into the Colosseum. As he stepped into the Colosseum, his eyes got big as saucers. His jaw nearly dropped. This private and quiet man could not believe what he was seeing. Gladiators were fighting to the death in front of him. The blood of his own Christian brothers and sisters was being shed as they were being torn about by swords and lions. And then he realized, as he looked upon this scene of bloodletting and masochism and evil, that these people were giving their lives for the short and fleeting entertainment of a mob. And Telemachus was cutting his heart. Finally, this man could not take it any longer. He jumped over the wall of the Colosseum, ran onto the floor, and dropped to the middle of the arena. When the crowd saw this diminutive man rushing toward the gladiators, he held out his hand and said, In the name of Jesus Christ, stop this madness! Everybody in the auditorium, in the Colosseum, laughed, thinking this was part of the act. But they realized that Telemachus was no joke. And then their laughter turned to anger. As he was pleading for the gladiators to stop, one of them took a spear and plunged it through his body. And he fell on the ground. As he was dying, he stood up one more time and he said, In the name of Jesus Christ, I beg you, stop. And then a strange thing happened. A hush fell over the crowd. It was as if a wave went over the masses and the collective conscience that had been dead among those people for so long was suddenly awakened. A man in the upper row was first to get out of his seat and walk out in silence. Others followed. And in dead silence, historians say that thousands of people started filing out of the Colosseum ashamed of what they had been enjoying. And historians tell us that was the last battle of mortal combat that fought between gladiators in the Roman Colosseum. And it all began with one simple, diminutive little man who heard the word of God and decided to obey and stood up when nobody else would. That God would give us a church full of Gideons today. Men and women who will stand up and say, this is my church, this is my town, this is my nation. And I'm following the voice of God. Would you join me today in that call?